Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. Today we are dipping into our considerable back catalogue of episodes and revisiting our interview with Shopify's Hannah Abaza all about sales and marketing. Hannah is now Director of Global Marketing for all of Shopify and at the time of this interview she oversaw marketing for Shopify Plus, the e-commerce platform's upmarket offering for high-volume, fast-growing businesses. Prior to Shopify, Hannah was head of strategy at Uberflip, a platform that helps manage and personalize content experiences at every stage of the buyer journey. So she's not only an expert in using marketing as a growth tool for your business, but has actually helped build a marketing-focused product. In today's episode, you'll hear Hannah talk about the value she's found in marketing operations, the tools she uses to better partner with the Shopify sales team, and she vents a little bit about what happens when startups chase what are supposedly the latest and greatest growth hacks. Former Intercom editor Adam Risman was in the driver's seat for this interview, so let's head over to studio to hear Adam chat with Hannah Abaza. Anna, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks for having me. So just to get us started, I'm really curious, how did you get from working in the world of martial arts to marketing? <laughs> and what what is it that you're doing today at Shopify Plus? Yeah, it's a bit random. Uh, so actually, before I got into the whole sort of tech marketing world, I ran sort of a chain of martial arts studios. So I did kind of the collective marketing for all, I think there were seven or eight locations. And I was general manager for two of the locations. And I kind of did that out of school and, and for quite a while. So I was teaching professionally for a while and then also kind of got into the business side. At that time, that was, and I'm trying to think of the year, but I don't want to date myself. <laughs> that was right around the time Twitter was sort of becoming a thing. And, you know, local businesses, small businesses were starting to develop online presence and build websites. And that's really sort of the direction we started to go in for that type of business. The interesting thing is, you know, we were really starting from scratch. There was no really website to speak of. You know, doing things like gaming local search on Google was actually much, much easier. <laughs> <laughs> than it is these days. Even just simple things like starting to build out a CRM so we had better customer data. So that's kind of what got me sucked into sort of the tech side of things. And I kind of started doing consulting from there, kind of started working on startups from there. You know, a few years down the road, made my way over to Toronto, uh, worked at a company called Uberflip which is essentially marketing technology. And after that, ended up at Shopify Plus. And so before we get to Shopify Plus, is there any weird quirks of marketing in the martial arts world that you feel lend themselves to tech? Any principles you learn there that you still lean on or are things pretty different? Oh, tons, tons of them. It's funny because when you look at the model for that type of a business, it's essentially SaaS, right? Because you're looking at recurring revenue, you're looking at very similar metrics around retention, right? Around upgrades. So trying to move people into different programs within sort of the the martial arts style that you're using. I would actually say that that was probably the most valuable experience I've had. And there are so many transferable skills in terms of how you look at the business and how you think of growth moving forward. Awesome. Well, everyone has some sort of strange story and how they fell into marketing, <laughs> it seems like. But I think that one's particularly unique. So Shopify Plus, how does that differ from the core platform? And what's your role like there today? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Shopify historically, and and uh, I don't know if many of your listeners, I would assume, are, are somewhat familiar with Shopify. So has been focused on helping people become entrepreneurs, build online stores, really initially started focusing on that e-commerce side of things. And historically, Shopify has really been focused on that sort of small business or that sort of individual entrepreneur that wants to start a company. What we started to see over the years is we actually started to see a lot of these small businesses that started on Shopify grow and actually get really, really big on Shopify, which was at first, I think a little bit surprising. You know, I think what a lot of people expected is they'd start on Shopify, they'd get to a certain size, and then they would quote unquote graduate to some sort of enterprise e-commerce platform. But we actually started to see a lot of those merchants stay on Shopify. And that kind of got us thinking about, okay, is there actually an opportunity here to create something that's tailored towards them, that meets their needs, that's for that sort of up tier of the market that's a little bit bigger, a little bit more complex, making a little bit more revenue. So that's really when Plus started off as an experiment. And uh, our GM at Plus, Lauren Paddleford, was really the person that sort of started to really discover, hey, there's actually an even bigger opportunity in this market. It's not really only just for people that are growing on Shopify. There's actually this white space in what's traditionally been known as sort of enterprise e-commerce. And as we started looking at sort of the alternatives in the landscape. And as we started looking at that model, we really realized that there was a huge opportunity for somebody to come in and provide a really great experience. And at the end of the day, a great platform for those types of merchants. So Shopify Plus really focuses up market, kind of that mid market to enterprise, if you if you want to use those terms. And you know, you'll see a lot of our customers are very high growth, got some Fortune 500s in there, you've got really big brands doing some really interesting things. So you mentioned in Shopify, very established. You've had a lot of these small businesses grow with the product, even if that wasn't by design. I think you hear people, a lot of people say that now that talk to smaller startups as their customers, that they want them to be able to grow with their product. Mm-hmm. So big, successful company at the time that you get there in a leadership role. What was it like walking into that situation? Where did you where did you focus first? Like, What tips would you have for someone that is is making a similar jump from a smaller but established company like Uberflip to a place like Shopify? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a huge, huge change, right? So when you're looking at moving from a company that's sort of in the hundreds to a company that's in the thousands, there is definitely a little bit of a mental shift that kind of needs to happen. And for me, it was an interesting scenario because my focus was specifically on Shopify Plus. And while Shopify as a whole had a really amazing and built out growth team that's been focused on marketing for a little while, Plus specifically, hadn't really done anything. And we didn't really have much of an infrastructure. We didn't really have much of a team at the time. You know, all of the sort of marketing 101 stuff that you would think that you had to do at B2B SaaS, we really had to go back and and start to build out because it was primarily, you know, focused on sales in the early days. So coming in for me, it was a lot about gaining context. And everybody says this to you, I think, when you start any new position is take the time to really understand what's happening and learn the market and learn the audience and gain the context. I think that was especially important somewhere like Shopify, where there are many different teams doing many different things, thousands of people, and you know everybody has a little bit of context here and there. So that would have been the number one thing. The other thing that I would say just... You know, not necessarily specific to Shopify, but anytime you're going into a new environment is 
I see two ways that people struggle and ultimately can sometimes lead to failure. I think if you come in and you don't wait and ask questions and build context and you kind of come in and go like guns blazing right off the bat, Mm, um, that tends to be problematic. And if you skew too far in the other direction where you get there and you sort of sit back and watch, but then you wait too long to actually do stuff, that's also problematic. So really trying to find the balance of when do you sit back and focus on gaining context and learning and understanding the insights around the business and how it operates, but also, you know, where can you quickly add value in a way that's actually meaningful versus detracting to the business? I don't know if that makes sense. No, yeah, totally. You have to get in there and and show the value of of what, because you're essentially operating a startup within a startup, which is unique in itself mm-hmm. about what that brings to the table. But as you mentioned, you have these customers that are major enterprises. And I imagine a big part of being at market like this is working closely with an enterprise sales team. How do your two teams support each other? What do you have in place to help make sure that's a successful, smooth, and ongoing conversation and relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of key things. I think number one, we have to have really shared objectives and targets and and we all need to be looking at the same, same sort of numbers. I think that's key. One thing that we've done that has been hugely helpful is we've created this thing called a revenue playbook. Mm. And I mean, if you think of what's traditionally like an SLA between marketing and sales, I don't know if that's something that you have at uh, at Intercom, but you'll see that really commonly amongst you know a lot of SaaS and B two B and environments where Absolutely. you have marketing sales team. Yeah, so I've never liked the term SLA um, in that context because it sort of implies like an us versus them kind of mentality. Right, there's some sort of negotiation um, at play and. Yeah, yeah. So I I actually like, I actually hate it. Um, And I've always tried to get away with not doing an SLA because I much prefer to think of it as a cohesive revenue team, right? Regardless of like org structure and all of that other stuff. I don't really care about that. But functionally, uh, it really is one team. So what we've done kind of in partnership with, with sales is, all right, we've created this revenue playbook. And we've kind of gone beyond the parameters of, what you would traditionally look at as as an SLA and really tried to map out goals, objectives, rules of engagement, right? Like how how are we going to follow up with leads? What are the different things that we're going to do? Who's responsible for what? Who owns what piece? You know, what are contingency plans if something goes wrong? Who has inputs into changing the process at different stages? What are the high level, you know, conversion numbers that we're trying to hit? And that that conversion piece in this type of a model, it really is a shared metric, Mm -hmm. right? Because when you look at conversion, it comes down to many different drivers. And some of them marketing is really mostly accountable for and some of them sales is mostly accountable for. So having that playbook has has actually been key for us. And not only has it been awesome for those teams, but we've also distributed that throughout sort of the organization at Plus. And a lot of other teams have taken a look at it and it's provided context to what our funnel is and how it works. And the next step for us is really to extend that beyond just sort of that pre-sale and really map out that entire experience. And really think of it more in terms of like a merchant or customer experience playbook and not just focus on that revenue side. I love that. I love how you've democratized that sort of information, but made it in a collaborative team building fashion rather than this sort of business SLA. Here's where the lines in the sand are. Was this playbook, Mm -hmm. what was it like to create this or was it already in place when you arrived? 
no, this is this was started from scratch kind of thing that we sort of instigated. And it, it was actually kind of fascinating to see it come to life. So it started with simple Google Doc with a framework. And we pulled in key people from sort of all of the different stakeholder teams. So we have sort of a shared business operations team here. So we pulled in kind of the person responsible for RevOps. We pulled in sales leads. We pulled in marketing leads. And over the course of, I think it was like four or five days, all of these people were just like adding to, commenting on. Like it was probably the most dynamic Google Doc I've seen (laughs) in a really long time. And the team really came together on it. And I think that's part of the key, right? Is that everybody had input. So everybody was invested in the success of rolling this out. And rolling it out to the broader team obviously is an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a bit of a challenge initially, right? Because, you know, old processes are pretty ingrained in people and it takes time to sort of train people and change behavior. But this has really become key, not only in keeping the existing team sort of pointed in the right direction and oriented in the right way, but it's also become key in onboarding new members of the team. And I imagine you all learned a lot about how each other works as well in terms of, do we really do that? Tons, tons. And and also it was a forcing function to dig a bit deeper into some of the metrics that we weren't necessarily digging into, right? So, I mean, when you look at service level metrics around your funnel, that tells one story. But when you start to segment things a little bit more and when somebody pokes in you know one spot that you didn't necessarily think of, it really opens up some insights that you didn't really have before. So it was, it was actually a great process. I would highly recommend, you know, startups that are really starting to build out and scale those teams go through a similar process. Process, but it's got to be done in partnership. So when you're building out and scaling those teams, I know one thing that you're particularly passionate about, I've seen you mention in a few different talks, it's just bringing marketing ops in sooner rather than later. What are the problems that are emerging that this right. is the type of position who can solve that? Yeah. So actually, that's that's actually a great way to look at it is like, and that speaks to the complexities piece. So obviously, size is a, is a factor where as a team starts to grow, you want to start to think about marketing operations. But the complexity piece is where the problems start to come up, right? Mm-hmm. So some of those problems are, for example, leads aren't getting routed properly to sales reps. Or they are getting routed, but it's missing data, right? You don't have data enrichment. Or the data that you're collecting on your marketing automation forms or your landing pages isn't necessarily going to the right place. Or you just don't have the bandwidth to properly implement those pages and forms and the tracking around them. So it's really sort of a combination of the actual executional stuff when it comes to campaigns and lead management specifically. But there's also an infrastructure piece to that as well, right? So... You know, as much as I would caution startups to get super, super worried around like the data that they have in order to drive their decisions, because in a lot of cases, you either don't have enough data or, you know, it's a little bit misleading in some cases. You still want to make sure you have the right infrastructure to actually track and extract that information, because as you start to scale, you'll be way ahead of the curve. So what does a healthy feedback loop look like between the sales function and the marketing function there? I mean, what types of the funnel should you just continually be optimizing and having those conversations around? Yeah, so really tight feedback loop from depending on what your funnel looks like from what we would call an MQL, so a marketing qualified lead. And I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can label that. I've seen, you know, a lot of people are now talking about product qualified leads. A lot of people are talking about different ways to qualified leads. At the end of the day, I don't really care what you call it as long as you have the right criteria in there. The conversion rate between that and a deal open, that feedback loop has to be really tight. So for example, 
do you have sales reps filling out disqualification fields with reasons around why they're disqualifying leads? Is that happening on a regular basis? Every single time they actually are working a lead. So there there's definitely is that sort of ongoing feedback that you're getting from the CRM directly. But then there's that more qualitative feedback that you're getting in talking to sales reps, which I think is incredibly important. And uh, you know, I'm sure that's something that you guys do as well mm-hmm. at Intercom, but you really need that mix of both quantitative and qualitative. And then the other piece that I would say is incredibly important, if you're not doing it, you should look at do it, is trying to do some sort of win-loss analysis. Okay. So you can really dig into why are you winning deals? Like what is the thing that's tipping people over the edge? But why are you losing deals, right? And that kind of data can come directly from conversations with sales reps, but also from conversations with customers that you're losing directly. So that's a hugely valuable thing that I've done in the past as well. Yeah. How does, what does that analysis look like in practice? I mean, do you meet regularly about that or is it some sort of just living doc? Both. So there is a living doc. There also, depending on the cadence and your sales cycle and and a lot of other factors, it might make sense to do a monthly review of sort of win-loss analysis. It might make more sense to do a quarterly review, right? So it really depends on what your sales cadence is and your cycle is. The other thing that it, that depends too is what is the volume of deals that you're doing? So if you're super, super enterprisey and you're doing like a few deals a month, but they're really high value, it's really easy to go through those one by one. Right. But once you start getting into higher volume, then you want to take the time to sort of synthesize that information and kind of bucket it a little bit, right? So maybe not going through every single deal that you won and every single deal that you lost, but really just pulling out the common threads. This is also super valuable for product, right? Because if you're starting to see specific product reasons starting to trend in that win-loss analysis, that's also really good feedback for, for product. And that's just sort of another input that can help guide roadmap. So what types of content are you finding the most success for when it comes to equipping your sales team with the level, of course, of businesses that you're working with? Yeah, so I think there's a variety of content that really helps the sales team. I, you know, we think of content across a few different buckets. We sort of have that top of the funnel content. I think most people would know what I'm talking about. So the things that are really topical that are very relevant to our audience. We have lead gen focused content. So this is the more meaty pieces of content that are generally gated. Not always. Um, sometimes we open them up, but generally speaking, they're gated. And then we have content that is actually very product related and very product specific that is literally written for the sales team. And and we actually get that a lot of the ideas for that type of content come from a list of objections that they've handed us. So one really great example is, you know, when we talk to bigger businesses around Shopify, because Shopify has been around for so long and it's been very focused on smaller businesses, sometimes we talk talk to these bigger businesses and they're like, oh, Shopify, Shopify's for small business. And they, they don't even know that Shopify Plus exists, right? So under all of these misconceptions around what it is and what it can do and the level of scale that it can handle. So even just a piece of content that addresses that, that's open to the world to see, but that's really effective when the sales team sends that to a specific prospect in order to battle that objection. And slowly but surely, you start to see them work through that objection a little bit quicker, right? Because they don't have to think through it on their own and explain it and convince it. They basically got all of the information in front of them. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode 2 of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our Chief Product Officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So speaking of the marketing funnel, one thing I've heard you mention time after time in your talk, so it really must be a, a drum worth beating, is that the funnel is not linear. It's not a clear process straight down where all the boxes are checked in order. So in reality, like, what does this messy process look like and why is this something marketers need to consider carefully? I think I keep beating that drum because I think it's it's detrimental to just sort of look at the funnel and assume that people are passing through this beautifully laid out <laughs> like stage after stage journey, right? So the way I kind of like to think about it is, there's the funnel, right? And most B2B are going to look something like an MQL or a lead to some sort of MQL or PQL to some sort of sales qualified lead to maybe an opportunity or something like that. And then eventually it's a close one or close last deal. And and this is essentially specifically to B2B, but you know, you can look at the funnel also for small business models where the funnel is much more like consumer, where it's self-serve, low touch, and they're maybe doing like a free trial and an upgrade and, and something along those lines. Uh, the reality is people don't always just flow through that. And those stages, and this is what I want people to remember, is those stages are for us as marketers operationally so we know what's going on. That's not actually the experience for the person that's, no, not that's even going close. through this. No, not even a little bit, right? And the reality is people go up and down that funnel all the time, right? They kind of go down a little bit, dabble a little bit, and then decide, nope, sorry, not interested, disappear for a little while, maybe come back and re-engage like, where we would consider them lower in the funnel. Maybe that's when it takes and they actually convert to be a customer. So, you know, really expanding our understanding of how people are interacting with us. So rather than just looking at the funnel, and don't get me wrong, funnel's important. You need to know how many people you have at each stage. You need to have an understanding of your conversion rates. But you also need to take sort of a broader view of what's the experience that people are actually going through and what is the thing that they're doing, right? So, I mean, just taking Shopify as an example and Shopify as a whole is you'll see people coming in and maybe they start a free trial. Maybe they start, you know, an online store. Maybe that business isn't the thing that they want to do long term or maybe it doesn't work out so well. So they leave for a little while. Maybe they come back, right? So that's just one example 
example of one individual's experience, which if you just looked at the funnel, it would tell you a very different story, right? So really understanding sort of what that experience is. And listen, it's hard to do that, but it's starting to get a little bit easier. It, you know, people are starting to dabble a little bit more with multi-touch attribution, which helps Mm -hmm. start to map out that story. But just looking at the funnel in and of itself definitely doesn't help. And understanding that people move up and down it also forces your behavior to really looking at how to re-engage people, right? So as people drop off the funnel, you know, maybe they're a little higher up now. Maybe you need to change the way you're engaging with them to actually get them to convert down the road. So that's that's really kind of how I've been looking at it. Yeah. So more, it's it's just about being more customer first rather than looking at it through, okay, the way we see this behind the scenes is how the customer mm-hmm. actually experiences our marketing. Exactly. And I, I mean, I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect, you know, our customers to conform to our operational processes, right? <laughs> Which is basically what we're doing when we say, you know, here's the funnel and everybody goes through it. So in the, in the past year or two, we've seen messengers become a big new tool for marketing and, and sales. How does that play into that process? Do you think it helps or is it more of a fad? Yeah, no, I I think it's huge, but I also think it's early. And I mean, you're seeing sort of the idea of becoming more conversational happening in a lot of different industries. I mean, it's happening in e-commerce, right? It's happening across the board in in SaaS and B2B, just in messaging in general and B2C. I think it's still early days. I think there's very few companies that I see doing it really well, like implementing it really well. I think that there is a balance that needs to be struck between, you know, what is automated and what is like a bot responding versus... Oh, that's, oh, that's, we, could have, we could talk for an hour and a half about that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I mean, especially given that I'm talking to Intercom right now. Um, I'm sure, you know, that's a conversation that you guys are having on a regular basis. 100%. But I think that it, it is potentially a game changer, but I don't think we figured it out yet and I don't think we've nailed it yet. And the automation piece scares me a little bit. I think we have a tendency sometimes to over-automate things. And I see this in marketing automation, for example, all the time, which I feel like was a bit of a precursor to this mm-hmm. where you get companies implementing marketing automation but they actually like haven't done the work before that to really nail down like what their processes were, what their marketing was, what they were trying to do. And the problem is if you automate bad marketing, it's still bad marketing. You've <laughs> just worse. amplified it's bad automated. marketing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I I think there's that same danger when you're starting to play around really with the messenger piece. If you over-automate, there is the potential for a really terrible customer experience. So that would be sort of my my lens on it moving forward is how how do we figure out how to strike that balance? Maybe you already answered this with the over-automation bit, but one thing I'm always curious to ask people on the marketing side is I feel like when we're engaging with products we use in our own lives, we tend to be evaluating the marketing through a little bit of a, a different lens ourselves. Um, so, I mean, you you have enterprise customers with what you're doing today, but looking at some of the, the other apps you use in your personal life that are maybe more in line with our listener base, which is a lot more early stage startups, what are the common mistakes that you see them making there that really I don't know, get under your skin or, or rub you the wrong way? Oh man, I so I saw this question and I got so excited <laughs> um, because there's a lot that and I've made these mistakes too. There's a lot that you don't really think about or know, or sometimes you know and you just ignore it. So I mentioned this earlier. I touched on it earlier. Um, that infrastructure piece is, I think, really important and. 
here's the thing. I don't want you to get overcomplicated, but I want to make sure that everybody thinks about at least having the basics. Mm -hmm. And by basics, I do mean basics. It shocks me how many people launch without Google Analytics, right? That's pretty sort of standard 101 type stuff. So really kind of at least thinking at a high level on sort of what your data infrastructure is. So you have some understanding and some insight into what's actually happening with your customers. The other thing that I see startups do really often is like they'll chase the growth hack, Mm -hmm. which is... Maybe short term, you get a bit of payoff. Usually long term, you don't. Usually long term, it just flops and you're, you're constantly in this cycle of, you know, what's the next growth hack? What's the next thing? And, you know, rather than that, what would be ideal is for really to th- people to think about, okay, what are the sustainable layers of growth that are going to work for the people that we want to get in front of. And that's going to be different for every company. But chasing growth hacks can be a little bit a little bit dangerous and get you into a bit of a dangerous cycle. I think a lot of us have heard of the law of shitty click-throughs. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So if you haven't Google it, I believe it was Andrew Chen that wrote about it. And it's a very real thing. <laughs> so definitely think about that. The other piece that's sort of related to that is just prioritizing where to start and what to do. And and then executing in a very systemic way. So you'll often see usually the same people that are chasing growth hacks are doing a whole bunch of different things without really having a process or a system in place to make sure they're measuring it and it's working and understanding where they should double down and what they should kill. So that prioritization piece is incredibly important. I think, I guess two other things that I would touch on is marketing doesn't start when you launch your product. Ideally, you're starting before that. So So better alignment with the product team and things like that? 100%. 100%. And I mean, to give you an example, I don't think I can do my job without really tight alignment with the product team because they give so much insight into not just what they're building, but you know what customers need and want and the direction of you know the product and how it serves them. So really, really important. And then the last piece I would say is the brand piece. I think brand is a really misunderstood term. And I think there's a really big difference between brand, branding, and brand marketing, right? Right. So, and I don't know how, how you think about it, Adam, but like the brand is really like the promise, right, of the thing that you're going to deliver and how people think about you. Branding is the expression of that. So voice, tone, visuals, etc. And brand marketing are all of the things that you do to reinforce that. So framing it in that lens, I think, forces us to think a little bit differently about it and forces us to understand that you can't just ignore brand if you're a startup, right? No, because that's, I mean, that's the foundation of all those more tactical things that you just expressed. 100%. 100%. Great. So... Hannah, this has been awesome. Where can our listeners go to learn more from you? So super easy to find me online. I'm on all the socials. Just Google my name. You can go to my website. Email is really easy to find. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll catch you again in the coming year. Hannah, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Adam. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Hannah Baza. If you did, there are over 300 episodes in our archive with enlightening, insightful interviews with everyone from Andrew Chen, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, to Wikimedia Foundation COO Janine Uzel. And of course, we have new episodes every Thursday. Speaking of which, see you next week for more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.